before I go very far, I've got two things to share. One is we got an update from the Bocheks as far as their family or their friends who are in the Ukraine. I will read that update for you. And then, uh, and then I'll talk about a book recommendation. So the, uh, the Bocheks say this. Thank you for your notes and prayers. We received this update from our friends. This is Kostya. This is the family that were in the Ukraine and needed to get out. This is what they said. My dear, precious, good old friends, all five of us are safe for now, together. Spent the last 72 hours in the car chased by enemies bombing, planes, and helicopters, heartbreaking air raid sirens. Found temporary shelter in Ukraine, slept our first night in bed, had our first meal. Please bear with my infrequent responses. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, just keeping us in Ukraine in your hearts. We love you all dearly. So they still are in Ukraine. They are still not out of the country. They are not out of the woods. So that's basically the update from them, but they are alive and well at this point. They just sent that, I guess, while I was preaching, maybe. Um, it's their friends. So the Bocheks are not trapped in Ukraine. They're friends that they have been planning on hosting are trapped. So um, I'm going to make a book recommendation. I realize I haven't re uh, recommended a lot of, of this kind of book before. This is, this is an important book that everybody should just have, okay? It's The Parables of Jesus by James Montgomery Boyce. I will grant you not the best title uh, cover design, you know, we could work on it a little bit, but the contents are really good. This is basically James Montgomery Boyce taking the parables of Jesus and explaining them. And for, I think a lot of us, the parables of Jesus, maybe they aren't very baffling, but I guarantee you there are some very baffling parables of Jesus. Um, so he does a great job walking through, explaining their meaning. Uh, it is just a wonderful, wonderful book. Very good companion to a commentary. You can tell that he bases these on sermons that he did. And all he did was take them and put them in the form of a book. And we're the beneficiaries. So this is a classic book. Um, really, really recommend it. And we're going to talk about the parables of Jesus today. So that's why I decided to pick this one. I'll send it around. You can all take a look at it. James Montgomery Boyce, The Parables of Jesus. Uh, so when we, we are at the second part of our discussion of the life of Jesus, and we are now at the baptism of Jesus. So we ended by talking about John and his ministry and his baptism. But the baptism of Jesus is the moment really when Jesus says, I am recording. Thank you for the reminder, though. I usually forget to record, so I need that reminder. Um, but the baptism, baptism of Jesus is the moment where his, his ministry officially begins. Um, all three Gospels, all three Synoptic Gospels tell us about the baptism of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do it. Uh, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John initially resists doing the baptism. Uh, he says, you should be baptizing me, in essence. And Jesus says that it must be done. And what's the reason why he says it must be done? To fulfill all righteousness. It's sort of this statement where we go, what does that mean? That you need me, you need to explain to fulfill all righteousness to me now, righteousness to me now, Jesus. And um, if you want to think about it this way, all righteousness is doing what God's purpose requires of him. He's saying we have to do what God wants us to do. This is basically how he responds to John. And this sense of 
requirement of him being baptized motivates him to be baptized. It's, he's explaining the reason why. Um, there are uh, mainly, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think Jesus is doing here in the baptism. He's identifying himself with Israel. If we could just go straight to it. Um, because if Jesus is going to live and teach and suffer on behalf of Israel, he has to be one of them. And that's what this baptism communicates. He's not a part of Israel just by way of his genetics and not just by way of the location of his birth, but he's also a part of Israel willingly, right? That's what this baptism represents, that he is willingly saying, not only am I being thrust into this situation simply because I'm the son and this is my path and I have to do it, but there's this element of the will here where he says, I'm willing, I'm willing to be baptized, And so Jesus identifies himself there on purpose, and he completely identifies himself. So it's not just his genetics. It's not just his upbringing. It's not just his religious upbringing as a Jew, but he also makes a decision that I will be part of this. Um, When he is baptized, the spirit descends upon Christ in the form of a dove. Um, This is likely not an actual physical dove that that comes down and lands on him after he's uh, baptized and said it's it's a a, a vision, right? Because the spirit has no body. The spirit doesn't incarnate. uh, The spirit is um, the Holy Spirit. He's invisible. He has no body. And so instead what happens is this spirit or this image of this dove uh, appears uh, descends upon Jesus, and what is the whole point of this? Why would they? Sh- why would the Spirit even do this in the first place? Well, the answer is Jesus is being anointed for his ministry. When you're, when someone's anointed, they're being set apart. When someone is anointed, it means that they're being um, set to a task. When anointing takes place, it's it's meant to mark somebody off as separate or different or distinct from someone else. And so the, the voice from heaven speaks and sets Jesus apart visibly, and it declares, this is my beloved son. He, he lets those who are the onlookers hear and know and be uh, encouraged by these words. But there's someone else I think that sometimes we, we miss that would have been encouraged by hearing those words at the baptism. And who might that be? Besides just John. Jesus, Yeah. I mean, Jesus, he already has a sense that he is the father's son. You see it even in his childhood. And yet Jesus also hears these words. Jesus hears these words as he's baptized. This is my beloved son. You can imagine the sort of reassurance that he would get, the sort of encouragement that he would receive and being able to probably see this spirit the, the spirit, the dove, but also to hear the words of the Father, right? This is a Trinitarian moment where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all converge in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in a sense, all three of them are at work in the life and ministry that Jesus undertakes. Um, after that, what immediately happens after he's baptized? According to Mark, anyway, immediately after. Yeah, immediately he's taken to the wilderness Uh, It's not Satan who leads him into the wilderness. It's the spirit who leads him into the wilderness. And when he goes into the wilderness, he faces the three temptations. Uh, You probably are familiar with these. You have the, he's tempted to turn the stone, the the bread, uh, (laughs) turn this bread into stone. I don't think that's the temptation. I got to get an editor. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that also, you just leave it out for a few days. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyone can do that. But turning a stone into bread, that's, a, that's a, a bit of an undertaking. And that's what the temptation is. He's, he's, he's out there among many stones. There are stones everywhere. And he says, turn these stones into bread. And, of course, the, the idea here is Jesus could. It must, to be a temptation, it must be within his power to be able to do this. And he certainly could. The temptation here, then, is not just a temptation to make some bread. It's not a sin to make bread. Uh, if it was, then all of us would be in trouble. Well, if any of us who know how to make bread, which is actually not very, I don't know. I don't want to take a poll. Um, but it, the, the deeper temptation is this. It's the, the temptation to use his divine nature as an escape from the human path he has to walk. He has to live as a man. He has to walk as a man. He has to grow hungry. He has to experience sorrow. He has to experience suffering. And, and if, he, if he's being tempted to avoid all of that, by recourse to his divine nature, which he could do, but then he would ruin his mission. And so that's the first time. Yeah, Micah. Can you maybe contrast how turning stone to bread there is sinful with how turning five loaves into 5,000 to feed 5,000 is not sinful? I mean, both those things are <clears throat> divine prerogative mm-hmm. to do something. Yeah. I mean... Think about it. Think about it this way. I mean, you could probably sit down and we could probably do a table of reasons why. And I, we could probably even crowdsource. Um, <laughs> we could probably even crowdsource the answers because I think you all pr- probably would have some insights into why it might be sinful here for him to, to, take the, to turn stones into bread, but not to turn uh, five loaves into 5,000 loaves or at least enough to feed 5,000. Like part of the answer is because there is something in this testing right here where he is being pressed on in a way that he's not being pressed there. What's he doing there? He's serving. He's serving others. He's caring for others. He's showing love for people. Uh, here, it would just be purely self-serving. Uh, it would just be him feeding his own stomach, feeding his own hunger, uh, and, and skipping this, this trial, which he's in, intended to go through. Uh, there's probably more of a better answer to that. But I think that's part of it, at least, that he's, he's being tempted to serve himself here. Um, he's certainly being tempted to serve himself in all of these things. Because look at the second one. He's, uh, Satan takes him to the, the temple uh, and says, throw yourself down from this temple, right? God will catch you. Let everybody publicly see God and his angels rescue you after you're being thrown down from the temple. And that's the temptation that Satan's setting before him. And really the deeper temptation that he's, being, that he's getting there is this temptation to short-circuit the life of humility that he's supposed to be leading and instead take a shortcut to glory, right? Because every, think about it, in Israel, what more public place is there than the temple? Uh, what more central location is there in all of Judaism? You'd have your religious leaders there and they would see him and they would know who he is. Um, you would have everybody from all walks of life there watching and seeing him get thrown down and then rescued by God. Um, and the idea is, hey, throw yourself down from this thing. Just go public right away. Don't live a, don't live a life of obedience. Don't, don't live a, a teaching ministry. Instead, just take the shortcut to glory. That's what he's being tempted to do there. And then finally, you, you know, there's this temptation to bow down to Satan. What's happening there? He's being tempted to abandon God for the sake of the world. He's being tempted to forfeit his own soul so that he can have the whole world. Um, that's what he's being tempted with. And by the way, I'm being very simplistic. You read some good sermons on these texts and you just find riches and riches 
and riches in terms of what's being set before Jesus here. Uh, so I'm being very reductionistic and simple when I talk about these. Um, but here's what you really see. If you wanted to summarize all these temptations up, it is a temptation to get the crown without the cross. Get the crown without the cross. You don't have to suffer. You can just have it. Uh, you don't have to go through all of this pain, this misery, this suffering. You don't have to be beaten. You don't have to be struck. You don't have to be crucified. You could just be a king. And the answer is Jesus came to be a suffering servant. I mean, that's what's foretold in, in, in Isaiah. By his stripes, we're healed. Um, this is the ministry that Jesus has been given. And he won't forfeit that. And he doesn't. Um, every t- single time he rebuffs Satan. And the interesting thing, and it, it's been frequently observed, and so I'm not giving you anything original here, but Satan is constantly quoting scripture in order to serve his purposes. And that's what makes what he does so wicked, right? He takes the scripture and says, hey, doesn't the scripture text promise that if someone is falling down that, that the angels will pick him up? Go ahead and put that to the test, you know? Um, and then what does Jesus do? He quotes back and says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. So he quotes another place in scripture. I think all the quotations actually come from Deuteronomy. Um, so here's what happens. You have the baptism of Jesus where he identifies himself with Israel. He differentiates himself from Israel. And then what happens? He goes into the wilderness, just like Israel goes into the wilderness, except this time when he goes into the wilderness, unlike Israel and their visit through the wilderness, he actually succeeds. He actually pleases God. He actually uh, uh, doesn't fail where they fail. Because at every point, what is God doing with them? He's taking care of them. He's providing. They are always failing. They're always picking idols. They're always bowing down and worshiping something besides the Lord. They grumble. They're hungry. All of these things, by the way, that sort of uh, dovetail with the temptations of Jesus here. So even as Israel is tempted, Jesus is tempted and Jesus doesn't walk away a failure like Israel does. And so the idea is Jesus is the newer, better Israel who doesn't fall. This is a retelling of the story of Israel in a single man. And he doesn't, he doesn't fail. He succeeds. I think that's totally on purpose. Yeah. I mean, everything's on purpose. Literally everything in life is on purpose. And everything in the New Testament is on purpose too. But yes, very much so. I mean, that is, I think it's meant to draw attention to that, if I had to guess. Um, I'm grateful Jesus didn't go in the wilderness for 40 years. But if he did, then it would have been, he would have succeeded. It would have been amazing. Um, so that's the, that's, the, that's the early beginning of Jesus' ministry. But here's the reality. What's the point of knowing what Jesus did and how his ministry went if we don't know what he did with his ministry? So let's talk about what Jesus actually did. Let's talk about the message of Jesus. Um, Jesus is a teacher. That's probably one of the best places we could possibly start is simply by acknowledging that much, if not all, of Jesus' ministry is centered around his role as a teacher. Uh, He is often called rabbi by the Gospels. Rabbi just means teacher. Um, But there's also this visible difference between the way Jesus is teaching and the way the rabbis of the day teach. There are things that differentiate him a great deal. Um, You know, the rabbis, what do they do? They don't teach with authority. Rather, when the, when, the, when the rabbis will speak, what will they do? They may open the scriptures. They, they will open the scriptures. But then they will say, this rabbi and this rabbi passed down this, this, this tradition 
to this rabbi, and they would keep track of the chain of transmission, and then finally they would say, who heard this? And it would all be a tradition that is handed down from one person to another. And so when they teach, they don't teach with their own authority. Instead, they, they're always very careful to say, someone else with the authority said this. And that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Jesus gets up and what does he do? It says in Mark 1.22, he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So he's somebody who has personal authority that's not derived by others. He doesn't need to point to some other person giving him authority because he has this understanding already of who he is. And so he's teaching and he's, he's ministering as somebody who's not a typical rabbi. When Jesus is talking, what does he do? He's captivating his audiences because he's using clear, simple, concise messages. He's not complex. You listen to Jesus and there may be a few things that leave you scratching your head and needing to study more. But generally speaking, there is nothing simpler than just reading the teachings of Jesus. When you, when you open the New Testament, you go to... I like my Bible without the red letters, but that's a textual thing. Uh, sometimes there's stuff that gets put in the text. And you don't know if it's Jesus that says it or the, the author of the text who says it. And that's why I don't like the red letters because I'm like, you don't really... This part, it's questionable whether it's Jesus or Mark writing it, right? Um, that's, that's me following a rabbit trail. Um, but you open your Bible, you go to the red letters, you read Jesus' teaching, and it is so simple. Children can understand the teachings of Jesus. Um, and then again, you can get lost in the teachings of Jesus too because they're so deep. There's something just amazing about it, which is why people come, right? So the crowds come. They want to hear him. Uh, he uses down-to-earth imagery. He uses illustrations. He tells funny stories. Um, you know, his audience would have heard the story about the rich man and a camel, you know, going through, a camel going through the eye of a needle, and they would have found it hilarious. It, it's, it's meant to be a ridiculous image, and it's meant to make people laugh. Like, you can just imagine him on the hill saying these things, and when they say it's easier for a rich man or a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you can just imagine the whole hillside just erupting in laughter. Um, that's the idea. He's, he's engaging. He's, he's funny. He's, he's approachable. Um, he's also concise. You know, he, he prob- you know, he teaches more than gets written down. John mentions in his gospel that if someone had written everything Jesus had done down, then the world would still be filled with books. Um, but at the same time, it, it appears that his messages, he, 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 he's able to speak in a way that he doesn't have to dro- drone on and on and on. You know, he doesn't have to do a 45-minute Sunday school lesson if he doesn't want to. He could say 10 words, pierce your heart, and then walk out of the room, drop the mic. I mean, that's, that's the kind of teacher Jesus is. Um, so Jesus is speaking to these people. He uses riddles. He's using puns. And he has a message. And the message that he begins with is this idea of the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, it's how he begins in Mark. It's how he begins in Matthew. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And the word for good news is gospel. He says, repent and believe the gospel. That is his message. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, when you're talking about the kingdom of God, I think it's important to at least think a little bit about that phrase because it's a phrase we use. And I think probably we don't always think as well about it as we possibly could. There's a Jewish background to the idea of the kingdom of God, right? God is the king of the earth. God rules over everything. God rules over the plants. 
He's the one who causes the sun to rise. He's the one that causes the rain to fall. He's the one that causes snow to fall on the peaks of Mount Hood. Um, He's the one who's in control of everything. And so there's this sense in which the kingdom of God is here right now because God is the ruler of all the earth, right? He's the king of everything. Uh, There's this expectation, though, especially in Israel, that God's kingdom was stifled by... We talked about it a few weeks ago about the timeline of what happened between the Testaments. Who came and crushed Israel and the rest of the world? Alexander the Great. And then you have, uh, and then you have, oh, his name just escaped me. Uh, Pompey, who comes and he actually uh, brings Israel under control of Rome. And the people of Israel are so committed to being independent and being free from Rome that all they can think of is... We need to be out of this before the kingdom of God can be here, right? This place is the kingdom of God when it's just us ruling over ourselves and where we don't have the Romans involved. That's what they're thinking. And then uh, Jesus comes and he basically says, my job is not to deal with Rome. In fact, if you want to think big picture, he says, my job is to convert Rome. I'm not going to overrule Rome. I'm not going to destroy Rome. Instead, we're going to change hearts. One person at a time. And so Jesus says there's this present reign of God right now. When he says the kingdom of God is coming, he's not talking about the year 2500 or whatever, you know, whatever year he ends up returning. He's saying, I'm here in this world right now. The kingdom of God is here right now. It's not something that you have to wait for in the long, long, long distance, but it's here now. It's started in me. You know, in essence, it's kind of like he's saying, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. This is my world. So there's this future reign that's coming uh, that believers still look forward to. There's, there's, there's a future judgment coming. There's a day when God's going to hold everyone to account. And in a sense, Jesus is saying it starts with his incarnation and it starts with his earthly ministry and it starts with his proclamation of the kingdom of God. So we have to think of the coming of the kingdom of God as something that's more gradual. It's sudden because it begins with his birth and his ministry, but it's also gradual because it doesn't get completed yet. So... Um, that's part of at least what Jesus is saying when he's talking about his kingdom. Let's talk about the ethics of the kingdom. Ooh, what time is it? Okay, good time. Um, so as far as the message of Jesus, Jesus is also saying, what does it mean to be my follower? What does it mean to be, to, to be a Christian? Um, you know, Jesus calls on people to submit to God's kingdom in their daily lives, but how? Does he call them to keep the law of Moses? Is that what he's doing in his, in his teaching? Well, you know, some people think that now that Jesus has come, it doesn't matter what God said in the law of Moses. And yet Jesus, what is Jesus always doing? Does he ever overturn the law of Moses? Does he ever say, hey, the law, the law sucks. Don't keep the law. No. Now, yeah, he raises, he actually says the way that you guys observe the law is what's lousy. You guys don't love this law because you don't see what's really here and you don't keep it from the heart. You guys have never kept this thing from the heart and you haven't loved the law. And so Jesus spends all this time confronting the legalistic, hypocritical way the Pharisees as a group are reading and applying the Mosaic law, but he never takes on the, the Mosaic law. It's, it's always the, 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 the twisted interpretation of the law. You know, it's, we talked about this in the sermon today that there are, there are good things that get twisted by the human heart. The, God's law is an example of that, right? 
You look at this thing and it's pure, it's perfect, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's flawless. Read Psalm 119 and it's just a ton of verses just praising the goodness of the law of God. The issue is just like food, just like sex, just, all of, just like all of God's gifts, it, this good thing gets given to you and you twist it and you mess with it and you misunderstand it and you misuse it. And so what are they doing? How are they misusing it? Well, they, they're keeping the tiny details. They're weighing out the amount of spice that they get, right? They're, they're uh, obeying the law down to the, the tiniest little quibble. And yet they're missing the big fundamental aspects of the law. They're missing justice. They're missing mercy. They're missing faithfulness. They're doing all the things they're supposed to do, but they're not loving the things and the people they're supposed to love. Um, he condemns their traditions. He says, he's, uh, he says, you thought it was about keeping score when he's talking to them. He said, you thought it was about keeping score. It's really about loving God and loving your neighbor. You guys aren't even doing that. And so Jesus takes them deeper than just keeping the rules. So, for example, you know, one of the ways that he does this is with do not murder, right? You've got the sixth commandment. It says do not murder. And then Jesus says, let's open that up a little bit. And he kind of opens it up like an accordion, right? You think that the Ten Commandment is don't murder. And then he just goes. And then all of this material is within the commandment not to murder, that gets at the heart of the person, right? That's why he says, I say, don't even hate someone else. Don't even call someone fool, right? He gets at the heart issue that gives rise to murder. You can't murder somebody that you love, right? You can't murder somebody that you love. And Jesus says, if you would stop hating, then you wouldn't murder. And so he's going underneath of the sins. And he does that with lust too, right? He says, you heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lust. Again, what does he do? He goes to the heart of it. He opens the accordion up. He lets you see what's inside of it. Um, I don't really like thinking of Jesus as an accordion player, but I bet Dave does. Where's Dave at? No, Dave's not here. Okay, that's too bad. Um, and by the way, all the stuff Jesus is saying there, it's not an invention of his. It's not new. Leviticus tells people to love their neighbor. So don't think of Jesus as an innovator. Think of him as a reformer. Think of him as someone who sees what's there and all he's doing is taking them back to the source again and he's showing them all the stuff that they should have seen before. So when you look at Jesus' Sabbath observance, what you are not seeing is a change from what was in the scripture. What you're seeing is the way that it always should have been practiced. Right? That's what you're seeing with Jesus. You are seeing a correct interpretation of the scripture in living color that's actually in live action that you don't have to wonder what it really looks like to keep the Lord's Day, for example. Jesus shows you. He shows you how to keep it. Um, so now let's talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Jesus fulfills. Um, how do we think about the fact that the early church stopped observing the dietary laws of the Old Testament and stopped requiring cir circumcision? We touched on it already today. Thankfully, I didn't need to run through all of it. But um, it goes back to Jesus and what his death and what his resurrection does to the law. So again, you've got a law that's perfectly good. It is an expression of the will of God. If you want to know what goodness looks like, you go to the law. 
But Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So you have to think about the word abolish. You know, I think the word abolish just means destroy completely, make it go away, make it irrelevant. Jesus, when he's talking to the disciples and interpreting his own life and ministry, he specifically eliminates that as an option of how you interpret his ministry. So he says, Whatever, however you come out of this thinking about the law, if you come out of it saying the law doesn't matter or the law is not good or the law is irrelevant, he's saying, you've misunderstood my ministry. So don't think of the law that way. Instead, he says, think of it as fulfillment. Think of my ministry as a fulfillment of the law. So if you want to understand fulfillment, it means we need to know the purpose of the law. Once you know the purpose of the law, you know what it means for the law to be fulfilled. If you don't know the purpose of the law and you don't know why it was given in the first place, then the idea of fulfillment of the law is going to baffle you. You're going to be like, what does that even look like? Why does that even matter? And so to understand fulfillment, you've got to know the purpose of the law. What's the purpose? The purpose is twofold. The purpose is to reveal God's perfect standard, right? To give us the moral law, to tell us what's right and wrong, to tell us what God loves and what God hates. Just to reveal God to us. The second is to provide a means of forgiveness. This is something you can't get from nature. You know, even though human beings know right from wrong, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. He talks about the fact that all human beings have a census divinitatis. We all have a sense of the divine, a sense of God, a sense of our responsibility to him. That sense is never enough to actually tell us what salvation looks like or how we can be saved. And so without the law, there is no salvation. There is no message of forgiveness. There is no rescue or redemption from sin. And so we have to understand uh, that God gives us a means of forgiveness in the law. He doesn't just tell us what makes us guilty, but he also tells us what makes us clean. He does both of those things in the word. Think about that then. When you look at the ministry and the life of Jesus in light of those twin purposes, and Jesus says, I am bringing that to fulfillment, what is he doing? He's going to write the law on our hearts, and he's going to make salvation something that is not just a ceremony, but something that comes through faith in him. All of these things that the Old Testament has set out for us, these things that are good, these things that are, are perfect, and now he's going to bring it to fulfillment and bring it to completion. He's going to make these things that people dreamed about for a thousand years actually a reality. Jesus fulfills both those purposes in the way he lives. That's the first one, right? That's the moral law. That's the ethics we were talking about. And then he fulfills the second purpose of the law, bringing salvation by laying his life down for people and dying on the cross. Both of those things come together and they come to fulfillment in Jesus' life and ministry. So that leaves you with this question. I think we got time. Is the law still binding? Well, um, I'm going to do a short answer and I know some of you have thought more about this than I'm going to give you right here because we've got five minutes left and I'm going to keep it simple. This isn't a class on this issue. I'm just trying to get at it. So... Um, there are, traditionally, there's been a threefold way of understanding the law. When you look at the Old Testament, you have these three categories. I think it's easier to think of them as Venn, uh, circles on a Venn diagram than it is thinking of them as uh, hard and fast categories. Uh, first law, or first aspect of the law is civil. 
What would the civil law be in the Old Testament? Yeah, you punish, you, you get punished for murder because you killed somebody, right? And then you go to the text and you find out what's the punishment. To restrain That's, evil. Um, yeah, the purpose of civil law restrains evil. It keeps people living in public life from uh, becoming maniacs and running around. And Maybe they want to do all that stuff, but they don't want to go to jail or they don't want to get executed. Um, so, so then you've got another aspect of the law, which is the moral Right, that's I mean, that's the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, don't steal, don't kill, uh, worship the Lord your God, and serve Him only. Um, Lord's Day, right? Uh, observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. Um, basically, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. But in the Old Testament, when you're reading different passages, you'll actually see that worked out differently. <laughs> One example would be, um, and sometimes you see overlap between these, right? Sometimes they aren't always neat categories. One of the classic examples is the example of the parapet around the roof of your house, right? You're supposed to build a parapet around the roof of your house so that your visitors don't fall off. If your visitor falls off, then there's a punishment for that in the civil law. Well, that is the civil law, but it's also got a moral aspect to it also, doesn't it? I mean, that's an outworking of the sixth commandment. If you read the shorter catechism, it'll explain that uh, do not murder also means preserving other people's lives and doing what we can to preserve their life. So even though it's in the civil law, it also overlaps with the moral law, which means that even though like today you wouldn't go to this commandment and say, hey, Adam Parker, you didn't build a parapet around the roof of your your house. Uh, You violated God's law. Um, you're still going to hold me to the essence of that law, which is the sixth commandment, right? Don't murder. Don't hate your neighbor. Care for people who are under your protection, that sort of thing. So you've got your moral law. And then finally, this is the one that uh, we talked about today with the bacon, right? Uh, we got the we got the ceremonial law, right? Uh, after someone touches something that's unclean, you must go X days before you can re-enter the temple and present yourself to the priest. Um, just I'm giving you a random example. Uh, and yet even in those, you actually see that there's a moral dimension to them and there's a civil dimension to those. Now, I'm not going to go way, 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 way deep into this. All I'm going to simply say is this. The civil law persists with Israel, because obviously uh, Israel is a nation state. Israel is a nation state, a theocratic state nation, ruled by God, uh, put in place by him. And it is, it, Israel is his picture of what he wants Israel to be. It is a nation set apart, different from all the other ones. 70 AD, Titus comes, destroys the temple. They have no more worship in Israel, at least as far as their public, um, as far as their public nation goes, and it just simply becomes a a vassal of Rome. Israel loses its independence, so when the temple is destroyed, there are no more ceremonies. Uh, Even today, no temple. All they do is go to the wall and they weep, and they wish that they could have their temple back. You have the nation of Israel itself erased, so that there is no more Israel. And now you have a civil law that can't be applied anywhere. And yet you also have still a moral law that persists. Not only that, but you have aspects of the civil law that still overlap with the moral law. And you have aspects of the ceremonial law that overlap with the moral law. And what that means is that the civil and the ceremonial laws always existed for the purposes that they did. 
The ceremonial law was always meant to lead us to Jesus, and they still persist insofar as they overlap with the moral law. So we still, we still read a text like the parapet law, and we still say, this is not, um, this, is, this still persists, this is still valid, this is still relevant. Um, there are still ceremonial laws that do the same thing. If we had more time, and we don't, <laughs> I could get more in-depth. We could talk more about shellfish. We could talk more about mixed threads, and maybe we even will at some point. But um, I think we talked about them when we did Old Testament, didn't we? We did. So if you missed out, you just missed out. You have to go back and uh, go on the website and listen to the, uh, the audio on there if I remembered to push record that day. Um, let me pray for us. We just have to go. And when we come back, we'll talk about the parables of Jesus. And afterwards, you can ask me all kinds of vexing questions that I won't have answers to. It'll be great. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, not only to teach us the way, but to be the way. That he came and showed us what life following after you looks like. And then he lived in such a way that he lived out righteousness and he bore our sins. So he didn't, just, he didn't just take our punishment, but he also gained a righteousness that he shares with us when we put our faith in him. So would you help us to put our faith in Jesus this week? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.